again. We've been going there for quite some time. <clears throat> it's an awful lot in the Gospel of John. And <clears throat> last week we delved pretty extensively into the fact that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And I know a lot of people have a hard time with that because they think, well, God's the one that's the judge. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the judge and the Savior. <clears throat> In John 5, 22, he said, The Father judges no man. He's committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men may honor the Father, the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. <clears throat> so we... We went into the Old Testament background for that, that, Genesis, that in Genesis chapter 18, Abram was speaking to God face to face, which is a little unusual. Uh, he fed him, I like to say, a beef sandwich and a glass of milk. That's not exactly right, but it did say beef, it did say bread, it did say butter, and it did say milk. So if I had that, I'd make a beef sandwich and a glass of milk. Uh, probably it was tortillas or something, but anyway. <clears throat> But he'd seen him face to face. He'd fed him lunch, and he ate it. And then once he realized that he was talking to God in the flesh, which ought to sound familiar to you, this idea of God in the flesh, he, he addressed him in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, he addressed him as being the judge of all the earth. So in John 5, 22, we see that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And in John 1.18, we saw that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. So the person that Abraham was talking to was Jesus. We have a hard time with that idea because we think, no, 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 Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal God. Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father speaking to God the Son, says that you're the one who created it all. He says, that in the beginning thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. And this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. So that's who we're talking about. <clears throat> so last week, in a way, it seemed kind of grim. I mean, yes, we addressed the fact that in John chapter 3, Jesus had explained very carefully to Nicodemus God's plan of salvation and that he was the only Savior. But in John 5, we saw he's also the only judge. So the judge is the Savior, and the Savior is the judge. And up in John 3.19, or 3.18, it says that those who believe in him are not condemned. Those who believe not are condemned already because they've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the, the, whether you're going to meet him as your judge or whether you're going to meet him as your Savior is depending on how you respond to him. <clears throat> he says that the only dividing line is faith, how you respond to his word, how you respond to the good news that he's offered. So there's a persistent pattern of human thought that suggests that somehow the eternality of the eternal life, now what I'm going to say doesn't sound very sensible, but listen, <clears throat> there's this thought pattern that says that the eternality of eternal life somehow depends on me. Am, am I good enough? Do I get to keep it? <clears throat> Uh, when it, instead of it depending on the eternal truth of God's eternal word given by the eternal judge of all the earth we want to believe that somehow I can affect how long I'm going to last doesn't that seem a little bit odd there's something wrong there because there's nothing eternal about me 
my attitudes, my thoughts, my works, my <clears throat> my feelings. There's nothing internal or even reliably long-lasting about my works or my attitude or my thoughts or my aptitude for being good or any of that stuff. In fact, what it comes down to is that if my salvation depends at any point on me, on my works, on my um, dependability, my reliability, my <clears throat> permanence, then I literally have no hope. Because I'm not. I'm not d reliable. I'm a sinner saved by grace. So what does Jesus say about this? This is what we want to learn, and we're going to go right on from where we were last week. Because last week we read John 5, 22 and 23, where he said about that he's the only judge and that those who do not honor the Son as they honor the Father don't honor the Father either. <clears throat> I want to depend on what Jesus says. I don't want to depend on what I think. I don't want to depend on other people's opinions. I've had so many people tell me their opinions about this, telling me that, no, you can't possibly know for sure that you have eternal life. I don't want to depend on self-help. I don't want to depend on self-improvement. I don't want to depend on my ability to produce righteousness. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, we were instructed to set aside self-help self -help and do-it-yourself righteousness. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. <clears throat> In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says that all of our righteousnesses, plural, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we are all become as an unclean thing. See, there isn't anything in me that could recommend me to God. There isn't anything in me that could give me a, a leg up, if you want to call it that. So it shouldn't surprise me at all to find out in the New Testament that God says exactly the same thing. But it was a shock to Nicodemus. Jesus had to explain it to him. It's no, it's no surprise to us because we read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Nicodemus didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. And it was a real shock to him to find out that he is, by all accounts, a good man. And from Jewish, Orthodox Jewish standards, he was a righteous man. He did what God said to do. But when Jesus told him that his only hope to enter heaven depended on being born again, that was a new idea to him. It shouldn't have been completely new because the Old Testament does talk about some similar things. <clears throat> but Jesus had to explain it to him. And that's what we read about in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. In 14, he starts off taking Nicodemus's mind back to Numbers chapter 21 where those snakes were invading the camp. There's these migratory vipers that live in the Middle East that uh, when they move, there's thousands of them on the move going across the desert, and they went through the Israeli camp and killed a bunch of people. So God had them put a bronze or brass serpent up on a pole where everybody could see it, and God's solution was when a man is bitten to look to that bronze serpent on the pole, and it says he wouldn't die. Doesn't say the, the holes in his leg would heal up instantly or the pain would go away or the swelling would go down immediately. It just says he wouldn't die because people were dying. These were a fatal, lethal, ven venomous snake. <clears throat> I like that story. I'm glad that Jesus brought it up because that matches our story. You see, each of us had a snake bite from the Garden of Eden, from the old serpent, 
that made us spiritually dead. And God says if we look to his solution on the cross as opposed to our own self-help, our own do-it-yourself righteousness, then we won't die. It doesn't say I'm all of a sudden everything's hunky-dory in my life. Everything's easy. Everything's I'll make more money. I'll win the lottery. I'll never get sick. No, it doesn't say any of that stuff. I still have a snake bite. I still have a sin nature. I still live in a fallen world. Those guys that got bit by those snakes back in Numbers chapter 21, their hope was what exactly what God says, look to that serpent on the pole, God's solution for their sin. This is judgment on them because they're grumbling and complaining against God. Look to God's solution and you won't die. <clears throat> so he, Jesus used that as an object lesson for himself. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he went on to say, the one that we're so familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the one we all quote. But it was connected to the thing about the bronze serpent on the pole. The bad news was there. The, the, the reason he's there is the judgment for our sin. That's the bad news. The good news is that he's saving us from that sin. He's saving us from the penalty of our sin. He's saving us on, a, on an ongoing basis from the power of sin in our lives. So we saw that whoever places their faith in his sacrifice at the cross will not perish but have everlasting life. And finally, in verse 19, we read, or 18, we read that it's not only the only requirement that it's not good works, it's not you know confession to a creed or anything like that or baptism or anything else it is strictly faith in the blood of Jesus at the cross. It's not only the only requirement, it's also the only hope that nobody can produce something else instead of that faith in Jesus' blood at the cross that could supplant it. And when people start to add things in, ultimately they're supplanting it. They're putting something instead of what Jesus did. People don't like to talk about Jesus' blood at the cross. It sounds gory. Yeah, it does, as a matter of fact. I saw some faces wrinkling and heads shaking when I was talking about Jim's, not Jim, Rick's blood clot. Yeah, it's achy. We don't like talking about that. And if you've ever butchered animals, it's smelly too. You know what? It's not nice. Guess what? That's the bad news. The good news is that's what saves us. You place your trust in what he did at the cross. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but almost all good news anywhere in the world is predicated upon some pre-existing bad news. You know, if, if the news this morning when Barrick was asking me how things were going with Stephanie's job hunt for her fiancé, they're getting married in March, uh, if the good news had been he's got this new job, what was the bad news? His old job was two hours' drive away from where they're going to be living. It'd be a long commute and doesn't pay all that well anyway. Okay. The bad news is he still needs a new job. The good news is God knows. Okay. So we saw Jesus as God's only solution for the sin of the human race, just like in Numbers chapter 21, the bronze serpent on the pole was God's only solution to the problem of the snake bites. <clears throat> a lot of people still want to think that there's something they can do to make God like them. 
People still ask that question today. Back in John chapter 6, verse 28, the people asked Jesus, what good work must we do to work the works of God? What, what must we do to work the works of God? In John 6, 29, Jesus answered. He says, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. There it is again. It's all God's asking, and it's the only thing that he'll accept is faith in what Jesus did at the cross. So the people he was talking to, they didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear, what can I do to make God like me? I don't want to change. I don't want to confess that I'm a hopeless sinner. I don't want to confess that I deserve to go to hell. I want to do something special that God will say, oh, well, in that case, you're okay. See? And we're still doing that today. <clears throat> but what Jesus did by demanding faith, and he started clear back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve placed their faith in God's promise of this coming Savior, the seed of woman, and he clothed them in a blood sacrifice. He clothed them in the skin of an animal that he killed for them. Okay, it's right from there, faith was the issue. Okay. We don't really want that. We want to be able to do something to make God like us. But the problem with that would be that Randy can do certain things that I can't do. George can do certain things that I can't do. Everybody can do something that I can't do. So, so maybe if that was the thing that you had to do to make God like you, I'd be left out. But what he requires is something that everybody can do and everybody can choose to do and nobody can stop you from doing. And nobody can make you do it. Nobody can force you to believe the gospel and nobody can keep you from it. You could be on the point of death, uh, somebody threatening you, and you could place your trust in Christ, and there's not a thing in the world they could do about it. On the other hand, somebody can try to force you to believe, and they, they can't. They can't change your heart. Jesus completely leveled the playing field, as it were, by making the requirement faith and nothing but faith. <clears throat> so who draws us to that? Who... who uh, eh, I mean, I can tell somebody about Jesus, and I've told hundreds of people, and I'm not a gifted evangelist. Out of the hundreds of people I've shared the gospel with, a handful that I know of have placed their trust in the, in the Savior. Uh, there's a few that I know about. There's a few I think, well, I don't know. I never saw them again, so I can't speak for those. But I know people personally that, I mean, my goodness, God just drops people in their lap all the time. They lead them to Christ. And it's like they come to them prepared. Maybe all I get to do is do the preparing. I don't know. I just don't know. <clears throat> but who draws us? See, we talk about the Holy Spirit moistening a person's heart and drawing them. And I think that's true. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come unto me except the Father draw him, pull him, pull him along. And that's true. Uh, but it's not exclusive to the Father, because in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, and it was specifically talking about the crucifixion, it says in the next verse, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I shall draw all men unto myself. The, the, Jesus is the magnet pulling on the hearts of every human that's ever lived. And the ones who will respond in faith are the ones that God chose in advance. He chose as a group those who would believe. That they could be good, bad, big, 
strong, small, little, fat, skinny, ugly, pretty, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. It's the heart response to the gospel. Uh, that's why John, not John, uh, J. Vernon McGee said <clears throat> that he used to, when he was a kid, he'd have to go into the, into the barn to feed the animals at night. After sundown, anyway, it was dark. Or maybe early in the morning. But he said that something that happened all the time when he'd walk into the barn with that lantern, the rats that were on the floor would go scurrying off to find cover, and the birds that were roosting up in the rafters of the barn mistook the lantern for dawn and started singing. So it was the exact same light, but their response was different. The rat ran from the light, the birds started singing when they saw the light. Okay. It, it, the light was the same for every, all of them, but their response to the light was different. <clears throat> the gospel is the same for everybody, but not everybody responds the same. He's drawing the whole human race. Now, I can't tell the difference by looking at somebody, whether they're somebody who's going to respond in faith or not. So I have the responsibility to share the gospel with everyone. But the scriptures assure me that every single human being is being drawn to believe. How they respond is, is up to them. <clears throat> okay, does Jesus reject anyone? The answer is resoundingly no. In that same chapter in John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father giveth me will come unto me, and he that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Under no circumstances will he cast out somebody that comes to him in faith. That's a good thing to know. Because some of us have slipped and fallen pretty hard. And that doesn't change my position in Christ. It changes my condition. Samson's condition was really bad after he kept falling and walking away from God and he ended up blinded and working for the enemy. His condition was terrible, but his position was still perfect. He was a man of God. A lot of people say, well, he came back at the end, you know. Kind of, yeah, but if you remember his last words is he wanted to be revenged for his eyes. He wasn't doing it for the glory of God. His only thought was to be avenged of his eyes. So I'm not sure you can say, you know, everything was back to good. That's not the point. His position in Christ was perfect. And by the way, he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as in that hall of fame of faith. We frequently call it the faith chapter. He's listed there in spite of all the messes in his life. And there was a lot. <clears throat> A lot of people have the idea if I, if I foul up bad enough, God will kick me out. I've been taught that over and over. I've, I've had people tell me, well, you know, you're saved by, by grace, but you're kept by works. Nope, it's not true either. Not true. I'm kept by the power of God. He says so. <clears throat> and Jesus says, under no circumstances, he'll cast you out. I had a long-running conversation with a dear friend uh, her name was June, and she had been taught all her life that if she sinned bad enough or neglected God's word bad enough or something, that God would renege on all his promises and dump her out. And we talked about that for years. She got so angry she wouldn't talk to me for several years. She didn't come to the Bible study anymore. And uh, then one day she finally was coming back, and we were talking again about it, and she was still hanging on to this idea that, that she had to somehow uphold her end of the bargain, 
There is no end of the bargain for you. Look at Abraham. When God set up his promise in, John, in uh, Genesis chapter 15, God set up, had Abraham set up a sacrifice, splitting these sacrifices in two, and that's the way that two people would make a covenant. They would walk between the pieces of the sacrifice together to bind themselves by the sacrifice before God. He had him set it up, but Abraham did not get to go through. God went through by himself. There was nothing for Abraham to do. God was going to give the land to his, his uh, offspring regardless of how Abraham turned out. That was God's promise. He swore by himself. Anyway, I was talking with this lady, and I finally asked her, because I knew she had several kids, and at least one of them was adopted. I think a couple might have been. In fact, I know two of them, at least two of them were. Uh, I asked her, under what circumstances would you renounce your children? Would you disown your children? Just nothing. Absolutely not. They're my children. I'm going to love them. My love for every one of them is unconditional. I said, that's good. So why do you think you're a better parent than God is? She says, I never said anything like that. Oh, yeah, you did. See, because you said that if you weren't good enough, God was going to kick you out of his family after he's already made you his child. But you wouldn't do that. You think God would. You think you're a better parent than God is. And it kind of silenced her for a while, and she thought about it for a few days and finally confessed that God's promises are sound, that he is a better parent than she is, and he's not going to kick her out. And that, that was the turning point for her. And she died maybe a year after that, but she died in peace knowing that her Savior was with her. See, her whole life she'd lived in fear that if I'm not good enough, God's going to abandon me. We don't have to have that fear of abandonment. <clears throat> John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. <clears throat> I usually just think of verses 27 and 28 because it's specifically talking about my relationship with Jesus as one of his flock. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I usually stop there, but I want to read the rest of this. Verses 29 and 30, it says, My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now that's quite a statement. <clears throat> so what truths can we find in that short little passage? I'm going to suggest there's at least seven points here. The first one, obviously, says, My sheep hear my voice. I think he's talking about faith. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Those who are receptive towards the gospel hear his voice. They're, they're listening, and they hear it as his voice, not just some street preacher that's babbling. Okay. <clears throat> Number two, I know them, regardless of what anybody else thinks of them. Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says, Who are you to judge another man's servant? According to his own master, he'll stand or fall. And he's able to stand because God's able to make him stand. Okay, I would have honestly, I thought that Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, I thought he had to be an unsaved man who was just lost in his sin. But God says in Second Peter chapter 2 that he was a righteous man, that he was saved, that, that God recognized his righteous soul. Why? Well, the only way anybody ever attained righteousness before God was faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God 
credited to him as faith. God reckoned it to him as faith, excuse me, as righteousness. And Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4, saying that, that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's the only way God ever called anybody righteous. Apart from Jesus, Jesus was righteous because he was righteous. Everybody else, you either come to God by faith or not at all. Hebrews 11.4 says, excuse me, 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh unto God must believe that he is and believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So those that hear him, that believe him, he knows them. He knows their heart. Nobody else has any say in the matter. Even I don't have any say about my own destiny. I've known people that were solid believers and that somehow Satan got to them and they turned their hearts away. God still knows them. Sure, they're off in the pocket brush someplace. They're in trouble. They're, they're hurting. But God still knows them. These are, this is somebody who placed their faith in him. They've gotten mixed up somehow. <clears throat> the third thing it says, they follow me. The normal response for a child of God is to follow Jesus. Does everybody follow Jesus? Nope. Uh, the best two I can point to in Scripture is Daniel and Joshua. I don't see anything that Daniel ever did that was wrong. Uh, he had a good enough testimony that his 123 worst enemies who all wanted him dead said that the only thing they could find wrong with him was his religion. So they made his religion illegal, and you know the rest of that story. He says, right, I'll go pray about it <coughs> in public from his balcony. And they arrested him, and he got to take a trip to the zoo, the lion's den. And the next day, all of them got to take a trip to the zoo too. The response was a lot different. But as a rule, these believers follow Jesus to one degree or another. I don't understand how Lot followed Jesus. The only thing Lot did in his life that we know that even looks like it might have been following Jesus is he tried to stick up for those two. He thought they were just two men who came to Sodom, tried to stand against the evil for their sake uh, very feebly. He didn't succeed at anything. Uh, everything else in his life was a shambles. His sons-in-law didn't even believe him. They thought he was joking when he said, God's going to destroy the city. We've got to get out of here. And they said, right, Dad, cool. And they thought, he said he seemed as one that, that was in jest. <clears throat> okay. So, but as a rule, God's people follow Jesus. Now, if I, can, if I take into consideration what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 17, where I'm going to read that to you because it's an important point. Uh, Romans 7, 17, Paul, all the way through chapter 7, is talking about the struggle he had as a believer trying to walk with God in his own strength. <clears throat> and it wasn't working. You remember he says, that which I want to do, I don't do, and the thing which I hate, that's what I end up doing. Some of you can relate to that. You, you realize that I keep doing the things that I, I know that's wrong. I don't want to do that. Well, Paul had the same problem. In verse 17, he says, now then... It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He recognized that he had two natures. And his old sin nature was going to continue to rebel against God regardless of what he did. God says that it can't be fixed. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, uh, that, I think it's verse 7, actually. Uh, he says that, that the old man cannot, the old nature cannot be subject to God. 
Let's see, I'll read it just to make sure I got the right verse. Yeah, it is verse 7. It says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So even God can't fix my old sin nature. That's why he had to give me a new nature through the new birth. That's why I needed to be born again. My old sin nature is not going to get better. So it shouldn't surprise me when I see that I'm still prone to falling into sin. So was Paul. <clears throat> In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and 24, 22 says that the old, I'm, I put off the old man. I've been separated from the old man. It's still there, but I'm no longer subject to it. I don't have to sin. Verse 24 says that the new man is created in the likeness of God. King James just says after God. It means in his likeness, in righteousness and true holiness. That my new nature can't sin. My new nature is genuinely holy, just like Jesus. So I got this dichotomy going. I got this fight going on inside. And if I, if I keep that in mind, then I can start to see that they follow me. If it's in reference to the new nature... And that's the only nature God's interested in dealing with. He, he doesn't, he's not worried about trying to fix the old nature. It can't be fixed. You know, when a guy came and did some repairs on our house because some rot had started in one corner of the house. He wasn't trying to fix the rot. He was removing it and replacing it with something good. Okay, God's not interested in fixing the rot. He wants to replace it with something good. He's given you a new nature. And he wants that new nature to be fed on the word and fed in fellowship and fed by the Holy Spirit and fed in prayer so that the old nature grows weak. <clears throat> if I take that into consideration, then I can say, yes, they do follow God. I know my old nature will never follow Jesus. My new nature always does. So if that's what a person's concerned about, and I've had people say, well, see, he's not following Jesus. He must not be a believer. Well, he's listening to his old sin nature right now, and I, don't, I can't see his heart. Uh, he's made a confession of faith. He believes Jesus is his Savior, and uh, my guess would be he's just living carnally. I can't see his heart. But in verse 4, here's the important part of this promise. He says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. See, at that point, there is no way that I can connect my works with the eternality of eternal life. I mean, that's what the definition of eternal is, right? It lasts forever. And that's what Jesus just said here. They shall never perish. It is eternal. <clears throat> There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I've had people try to tell me well, long, you mean as long as I keep walking with him. No, I, he didn't say that. As long as I keep trying. No, he doesn't say that. He says, they shall never perish. If you've placed your trust in Jesus' blood at the cross, you're going to spend eternity with him. Your position is perfect. Your condition might be lousy. I've had people that I know were believers that were in horrible sin. And you've known them too. You've known people like that. His clear promise is, you place your trust in Christ, you're not going to perish. You want to think carefully before you try to change Jesus' words. He is the eternal judge, and this is a serious issue. We don't go changing his words. He finally says, no man can pluck them out of my hand. That includes you. You can't pluck yourself out of his hand. 
I had somebody tell me, well, they can't pluck you out and God won't kick you out, but you can sure jump out. Well, no, you can't. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 39 says that no created thing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I'm a created thing. I can't separate myself from his love. Okay? He's the one that's in charge, not me. And he says, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. That seems redundant, unless you consider the fact of the two hands, that no man can pluck them out of my hand, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I'm completely enclosed in the love of God, and Satan can't touch me. I'm safe with him forever. I'm completely closed up in him. And that ties in with the rest of God's word. And finally, in chapter, in verse the last thing, verse 30, he says, the Father and I are one. That's kind of the bottom line. Jesus, God the Son, is so completely in unity with God the Father that their purpose is completely united, and both of them insist that we're safe in Christ. So what relief that can give me, what peace that can give me, knowing that I can't flub up so bad that God's going to get rid of me. And it also makes me want to walk with him. I want to honor him. I, I know that my works aren't going to change my position, but they can sure change my condition. I can be happy. I can be peaceful. I can be joyous. I can be walking with God in victory rather than just dragging along wishing that I'd do better. My works can affect that, but they can't affect my position in Christ. <clears throat> so here's the final question. When is this available? In fact, that's the title of today's message, is eternal life is available now. I had somebody tell me, well, you can hope that you have eternal life, but you can't know for sure until you die. Really? Here's what Jesus says about this. This is the verse we're on today. I took a long time getting here, but let's read verse, chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. This is a favorite passage of mine because it covers my past, my present, and my future in one promise. Let's read it carefully. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who hears my word, there's the gospel, and believes on him who sent me, there's faith, has, get up where I can read it, the bifocals aren't lining up right, <clears throat> has eternal life. That's present tense. It doesn't say will have. Has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation that's future tense, but is passed from death into life. That's past perfect. That means it's a done deal in the past and you can't change it. It's permanently passed over. Right? Now, see, I've had people tell me that, that you can't know until you die, but this is the best news of all, is that I can know today that I have eternal life. And not only that, God says he wants you to know. He doesn't want you to just think or hope. If we jump over to 1 John, the, not the Gospel of John, but the, the epistles, 1 John, right before Revelation, <clears throat> chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, he says, this is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son uh, hath the life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Verse 13, this is the kicker. These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have, present tense, eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He wants us to continue in faith. He wants us to have 
peace because of that. But under all that, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. By the way, when you're reading Ephesians 6 and you're talking about the helmet of salvation, that's what it is. That protects your mind. Knowing that you have eternal life protects your mind against Satan's suggestion that, oops, you sure messed up that time. God's going to throw you out for sure. People joke about that. Even unbelievers say, what, you did that? Oh, you're going to hell for sure now. I had a guy tell me that because I rubbed coffee grounds into the neck of a violin I was working on. He was kidding, but I said, well, I don't think I will, but if I do, it won't be because of the coffee grounds. Okay. So it's so different from the people read this and they want to say, he that believeth, will have eternal life because that is a future tense maybe i'll get it maybe i won't maybe i'll hang on it opens it up to all kinds of ifs ands or buts if i'm good enough and things like that maybe i lose out on my end but the actual promise doesn't even make that a possibility it concludes that the person through that single act of faith has permanently been transferred from death into life that's how lot was saved it's not because of his works his works are terrible the last thing we see is he had both of his daughters pregnant by incest. That's the last thing we hear about a lot. And, and God said he was a righteous man, not by his works, only by faith. And the person making this promise is the eternal judge of all, all the universe. That's, that's who's talking. That's what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the judge. And he's just got explaining that, done explaining that. We're not stretching what he's saying. We're reading exactly what he says. He not only made the promise that you can have eternal life now, he states that he wants you to know it. He wants you to be secure in that. We're going to stop there and pray, and then we're going to have communion together. Lord Jesus, we'd ask you to teach our hearts to rest in you, that we can know that your righteousness has been imparted to us and that your grace is what saves us and that our faith, regardless of how weak and faltering, all you ever required in order to begin walking with you. Give us the faith to rest in your promise and to follow you more faithfully. In Jesus' name.